CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to the Georgia Today podcast from GPB News. Today is Friday, March 10th. I'm Peter Biello. On today's episode, the Georgia House passes its version of the fiscal year 2024 budget. A new voter registration system was launched yesterday, and we'll explain why you may not have noticed. And Zoo Atlanta is celebrating two tiny new additions. These stories and more are coming up on this edition of Georgia Today. The Georgia House has passed its version of the fiscal 2024 budget. The $32.5 billion budget includes increased funding for education, more funding for mental health services, and a raise for law enforcement officers as well as state employees. It also includes funding for $1.25 million state police post in Buckhead to address safety concerns, and it also increases funding for the HOPE Scholarship. But it doesn't fully fund the scholarship, as Governor Brian Kemp proposed. GPB's Sarah Callis has more. The House version of the budget covers 95% of in-state college tuition costs under the HOPE Scholarship with a B average. Kemp suggested fully funding it. Georgia high school students with the Zell Miller Scholarship, which requires a higher GPA and standardized test scores, get a full scholarship. Students who've been working towards the Zell Scholarship deserve to have their hard work acknowledged in a higher payment. Representative Stacy Evans says the cut was unnecessary. We are going to deprive the students of this state that have earned hope because we want to treat the Zell Miller scholars a little bit better. The House version of the budget now goes to the Senate, where it will likely undergo more changes. For GPB News, I'm Sarah Callis at the State Capitol. Several state and local elections officials gathered at the Capitol yesterday to celebrate the official launch of the state's new voter registration system. GPB's Stephen Fowler reports on the Georgia Registered Voter Information System, or JARVIS. As a voter in the state, you probably won't notice much difference with the new system, but that's by design. The Jarvis system will be easier for local elections offices to use, especially for more accurate absentee ballot processing and streamlining the check-in process for those who vote in person. It's one of many technology and infrastructure updates Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger has made since taking office in 2019, including the largest ever rollout of a new voting machine system at the start of 2020. And now, in only 15 months, we have executed the largest, fastest rollout of a top-down statewide voter registration system. That's the largest and fastest in American history. Georgia has nearly 7.9 million registered voters on the rolls. For GPB News, I'm Stephen Fowler. The Board of Regents of the University System of Georgia announced yesterday Stuart Rayfield as the new president of Columbus State University, the first woman to serve in the position. Rayfield spent a decade as professor and administrator at CSU before leaving the campus in 2016. She currently serves as the university system's chancellor for leadership and development. She'll start her new job July 1st. Embattled former Savannah Police Chief Roy Minter is closer to becoming the U.S. Marshal for the Southern District of Georgia. GPB's Benjamin Payne reports. The Senate Judiciary Committee on Thursday approved President Biden's nomination of Minter to lead the Marshal Service in Georgia's Southern District, which includes Savannah, Augusta, and Brunswick, among other areas. The Marshal Service is the oldest federal law enforcement agency and is tasked with protecting federal courts, serving arrest warrants, and transporting prisoners. 
Minter resigned his post last summer as Savannah's police chief. During his tenure, more than 70 police officers filed a complaint with the city's Human Resources Office, alleging Minter made threats to officers, showed favoritism towards others, and failed to adequately equip the force. However, no actions were taken against him. Minter's nomination has taken unusually long, as he was first nominated last May. Most Republicans on the Judiciary Committee voted against him. All Democrats voted in favor. Minter's nomination now heads to the full Senate. For GPB News, I'm Benjamin Payne in Savannah. Georgia Power is giving customers a one-time credit on their March bills. The company says the credits are based on its business performance and will vary depending on customers' energy use. The announcement comes a month after a rate increase started hitting customers' bills and a week after the company asked for another rate increase to offset higher fuel costs. If the second rate hike if the second rate hike is approved, the average residential customer could see bills jump by $17 to $23 per month starting in June. Georgia Democratic Senators Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff say they've secured $1.5 million in federal grants for Georgia airports. The grant was awarded Wednesday by the FAA's Airport Improvement Program and will be administered by the Georgia Department of Transportation. The funding from the bipartisan infrastructure law is meant to modernize these airports by updating existing runways, constructing a new hangar and additional taxi lanes, and adding fencing to enhance airfield safety. Recipients of the funding include Cook County Airport in Adel, Hazelhurst Airport in Hazelhurst, Jenkins County Airport in Millen, Ware County Airport in Waycross, and Elbert County Airport in Elberton. Georgia's overall job market stayed strong in January. State Commissioner of Labor Bruce Thompson reported yesterday the unemployment rate stayed level from December to January at 3.1%. The number of workers on employer payrolls in Georgia rose by 17,000 from December, setting a new record at nearly 4.9 million. An enslaved Macon woman disguised herself as a free man. Her husband pretended to be his slave, and they both boarded a train for freedom. That is the story Ilyan Wu tells in her book, Master Slave, Husband, Wife. GPB's Orlando Montoya spoke with her about it. How did you first learn about the crafts, and what about their story attracted you as a writer? Well, I was drawn to the crafts through their own words, through their own story. So the crafts are known for this incredible escape that they made, but it didn't stop there. Even once they achieved this uh, nominal freedom in the free states, they continued to tell their story on the road. They were, became media sensations, and they were really inventive as storytellers. And eventually, 12 years after they escaped um, Georgia, they wrote and published an incredible narrative called Running a Thousand Miles to Freedom. And that was my first point of contact with the craft. Well, let's go back to the beginning, perhaps. What was life like for the couple in Macon? So this is the interesting thing. You know, oftentimes I think when we think you know, when you have popular imaginations of slavery and enslaved people, there's imagine, imaginings of these large plantations and cotton plantations. That wasn't the reality of enslavement for William and Ellen Craft. They were urban for, for to begin with, and they were both in what they would call positions of relative privilege. Um, Ellen was a skilled seamstress. William was also a skilled artisan. He was a very talented cabinet maker. And so he, too, had more movement and more ability to earn wages, for example. How did Ellen's work as a domestic worker prepare her for this trip? I think in so many ways. I mean, first of all, she had 
access to news and information, being inside the household and being so in such close proximity with her enslavers. She also had the opportunity to, to study the movements of and, and the behaviors and the language of these enslavers. And in fact, from childhood, she had to really be, learn what those markers were because she was so desperate not to be mistaken for a child of the household. So she had to learn and internalize those lessons of what, what, what did a master look like? Uh, how did a master move? And how did they speak in contrast to an enslaved person as herself? Have you counted up the number of times that their disguise could have been revealed on this trip? I don't think I've counted because there were so many of them. I mean, it's just at every possible turn. It was a, it was a story that even though I knew it was going to happen, I was kind of at the edge of my, my own seat as I was writing it because it really seems impossible that they're going to make it with all the, um, really all the challenges they face on the road. They... Eventually made it, made it to the north. You mentioned that they uh, went to England, and we'll talk about that at the end. But I want to get somewhat into the book itself and the mm-hmm. process of writing. There was a book that they themselves wrote. How did you discover that? And was there any other information out there besides this that that, that, you, that you dug up yourself? Mm-hmm. Well, so this is it's a wonderful book. It's called Running a Thousand Miles for Freedom. And it's maybe 60-some pages long. It's relatively short. And it is it has a really rollicking adventure. They describe it almost as an adventure story, almost like a travel narrative. It's so many different romance, all these different things at once. But there's a lot that they don't say. And they can't say or they won't say because at the time of their writing, Maria, Ellen's mother, is still enslaved by her original enslaver-father's wife. So they have to be careful, and they still have other loved ones in bondage. So there's a lot that they don't reveal. They don't, they don't for example, include the name, names of their enslavers. Um, actually, William does, but he doesn't include the first name. So there's, there are a lot of gaps. Um, they go on this incredible abolitionist lecture circuit to tell their story, and there's a big crisis in Boston. I mean, there's adventure after adventure, but they, they actually don't narrate those experiences. There's nothing about the abolitionist lecture tour. I mean, can you imagine both in the UK and when they when they first escaped slavery? It's only been like a couple of weeks, and they're on this crazy abolitionist lecture circuit. They they've just just escaped, and they're physically exhausted. I'm sure, like spiritually and every other possible way, depleted. And every night they're going, and every night people are asking these pretty probing, very deeply personal questions about their loss um, and their trauma and their families and their all these experiences. It's possible that she just decided that she didn't want to speak these things anymore. She seems to be very good about speaking up when she wants to, which is why I think that we have to take those silences as another kind of gesture. Was there ever a moment when you thought that this book could be done as a work of historical fiction by, for example, inventing dialogue? Well, I'm sure it could be. I think it could make a fabulous play. I think there's so many different ways to interpret the story, and I hope there will be other artists and filmmakers and, and mus- you know, musical uh, uh, writers who will jump in and do that. But for me, that was never a possibility. I guess I wanted to honor the craft by presenting everything I could factually and not putting myself in there by imagining anything. About the book's pacing, 
How did you decide how quickly it should read? As you mentioned, the, their story themselves was, was 60 pages. It, it could have been a, a short book, uh, but it, it, you paced out the, the revealing of the information. Mm-hmm. Well, it was really important for me to not just focus on the, the spectacle of their escape, but really to show the full picture, really kind of almost give a panoramic picture of both the before and the after and everything that they risked at every single moment of this journey. I mean, that's really when you see how amazing and heroic they are, when you see that at every any possible moment, I mean, they're hanging above a pit and there's like a string that's suspending them there and any false move could lead them into uh, an abyss. Uh, that was really important to me to be able to do that. The crafts eventually settled in England. Did they ever get to truly enjoy freedom? I don't think I can speak for the crafts because I, I'm not in their heads, but just based on everything I've known and studied and um, and uh, of them, I would say that there are people who dug heartily into life. They're not ones to have sort of sit back and, and say, um, I don't really care. They cared so, so deeply about everything. And I think that kind of passion, when you lead life with that kind of passion, it it comes with joy. And they brought joy to so many people around them. And finally, two critically endangered bog turtles hatched at Zoo Atlanta earlier this month. The tiny turtles, measuring no more than four and a half inches as adults, are threatened by shrinking habitat, collection, and illegal trade. That's according to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. The species is found only in the eastern U.S. The Zoo Atlanta hatchlings both enter the world weighing less than half an ounce, with shells roughly the size of a quarter. And that is it for this edition of Georgia Today. Thanks, as always, for choosing us to help you stay informed about your state. We've got lots more news coming your way next week, so the best thing to do now is to subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. That way we'll pop up in your feed with all the latest stories from the Peach State. If you've got feedback, let us know. The best way to send it is by email, and the address is georgiatoday at gpb.org. And if you like this podcast, leave a review. That helps other people find us. I'm Peter Biello. Have a great weekend. We'll see you on Monday.